This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. This is Season 7, and every week this season, we'll bring you fresh content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations, and our main goal in everything we do, including this podcast, is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we get into today's main content about engaging with the next generation, I want you to know about a related resource called Leaving a Legacy. It's a free ebook at discipleship.org slash ebooks, and it's written by Bobby Harrington with a foreword by Robert Coleman. The special resource describes 10 leadership characteristics from the life of Billy Graham. You should check this out at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Scroll down and find leaving a legacy as you think about today's content from Leadership Network. We're featuring Leadership Network's track from the National Disciple Making Forum called Reaching, Raising, and Retaining the Next Generation. Today's session is called Why the Most Diverse Generation Demands a Reconciled Church, featuring Grant Skeldon and Monica Zuniga. Hey, everybody. Uh, Thank you for joining us. We're going to get started very quickly. Um, I wanted to go ahead and introduce to you guys our speakers, who we are, kind of what we do. Uh, So my name is Luke Lazan. I am on staff with Initiative Network. Grant and Monica are going to be your primary speakers, uh, but we are talking in this session about why the most diverse generation ever is demanding a reconciled church. And uh, as someone that's not uh, your really minority. I'm not going to talk as much on this one, but uh, going to do a lot of listening. And so uh, Grant and Monica will be speaking. And what we do at Initiative Network is a lot of uh, identifying, gathering, and um, just really mobilizing next generation leaders. And so um, we do some incredible work with the, the best young leaders in, in the marketplace, in the church. And so we gather them for retreats. We just find that it's so much easier to create relationship through getting people together without their phones in the woods sometimes than it is just through going about everyday life. And so we've seen some incredible fruit from that. And uh, Grant actually leads Initiative Network. His book is also here, by the way. Um, so if after the message you feel like, man, I'd love to hear more about what they're doing and what's going on, uh, feel free to talk to us about purchasing one of of his books, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Grant. I, I know what it is. It's a video. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. One second. That this is motor. <laughs> just some just some YouTube videos playing in the background. Um, hey, okay. So just to get a gauge, how many of you guys came for, mostly because of the next gen conversation? Like, I, I want to hear more on the next generation. Okay, and then how many of you guys came? Because, like, I really came actually way more for the diversity conversation. Okay, good deal. Because we're going to try to do both. I'm going to talk a little bit more on the next-gen deal. Um, I do think we're the youngest speakers at this whole conference um, by at least 15 years. And so, I, so I'm going to do – I mean, I'm going to try to focus on the next generation a little more because um, I know that that's, like, a unique angle that everyone else is maybe not bringing as much um, – and so, and that's, yeah, not, no, no dissing, I'm just saying. Um, all that to say, I'm going to talk to parents, too, of millennials. I feel like there's a lot of, when I was reading that, I just felt like there was a lot of, I'm a parent or grandparent of the next generation. And whether you are a parent or a pastor, this will be helpful um, to just see 
Here's even what I would say is I'm I, my book is called The Passion Generation. It literally, yesterday was the one year mark since it came out. It was published with Zondervan, and so the the title is The Passion Generation. The subtitle is The Seemingly Reckless, Definitely Disruptive, But Far From Hopeless Millennials. And so um, I called it The Passion Generation because I feel like there's this this tension where we need reconciliation between generations, between passion and provision. And, and I'll, I'll talk about that real quick and just share, um, as you guys are familiar with the American dream, um, some people like it, some people don't like it, but I, I do feel like the American dream for this next generation feels sometimes like a millennial nightmare um, and doesn't work like it once used to. And so real quick, just I have like this, I feel like Samson without cut hair if I don't pray. I've got to pray and then we'll get started. Uh, I really do. I just feel like everything will crash and burn if I don't do it. Um, uh, Lord, every time uh, we get the privilege to share on behalf of literally an entire generation, um, just want to take it seriously and put it before you. Um, an incredibly diverse generation that's hard to put into one box of what they are like. And so um, we have uh, different voices with different perspectives and different backgrounds. But um, at the end of the day, God, one thing we're very sure of is that we have not seen a younger generation that is as far from you as we have with millennials and now even more with Gen Z. And so uh, would you let each one of us leave, of course, with more hope in the future of the church, more encouragement towards the future of the church, and especially insight of what small part or big part can we play in shifting the culture of the future of the church? Um, If anything, let the difficulty and the persecution and even the lack of faith, um, you say in Luke 10 to pray for more laborers, and we ask that it would raise up very godly, rooted, mature uh, prayerful, fasting, young people. That's all shocking to the type of Christianity that we've seen in the last maybe 20, 30, 40 years that there will be a generation that's just deeper um, out of all the difficulty and the darkness that they would shine like an incredible light um, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, the call, uh, let me show you what I feel like the American dream is and how this has shifted and how this is helpful for you as a pastor or a parent is, um, in my opinion, uh, this is kind of how life worked. Is you go to college, you would hopefully get a job after you go to college. Then you would uh, get married, hopefully, and join a church, get planted, stay faithful to those things for a long time. Like, um, how many of you guys have parents or grandparents that had a job for over 10 years? The same job. God, we're the, we're the worst. <laughs> That's like everybody. It's like everybody. I, I don't know if you know, but the average millennial is on the trajectory to have 14 jobs by the age of 40 years old. Um, we are so different. And and I'll just be, I'll, I'll admit, that's bad. We're just terrible in, in that sense. Like, But also, so you know, it's not like young people want to always switch their jobs. It's like they are searching for a job that they're like fighting for, like matters or makes a difference. So I'm going to get into that too. Um, so it's no one's winning when that is happening, but especially employers. I know that's frustrating if you're always losing your employees. Um, so then if you stay faithful for a long time, you could possibly accomplish the American dream where you get maybe a, a nicer home or a better uh, uh, education system that your kids are in. Um, just a better life. Sometimes we really try to criticize the American dream like it's uh, there's uh, that it's prideful or that it's greed or all that, but at the end of the day, at the core of the American dream, I believe, is to provide a better life for your kids than the one that you had. And I think that's great. Like, 
Is there anyone in here that doesn't want to provide a better life? Like, wish they have a worse life than you did? Yeah, it's like, because I, I don't know why any parent wouldn't want that. And so at the core of it is good. Um, G.K. Chesterton said that every uh, vice is a virtue that is gone wrong. And so, of course, it can go bad. But by and large, most people aren't trying to just be extremely greedy. All that to say, um, there was a book called Halftime by a guy named Bob Buford. Anyone familiar with this book? It's a very popular book, especially in the Christian marketplace world. And it's where people went down this road for 40, 50, 60 years, accomplished the American dream, dedicated their life to it, and had provision in an unbelievable way. Except the problem was um, it felt empty at the end. Like they got it all. And they were like, the question they asked at the end of the life in the book, it says was, is this it? Like, is this all? Um, And it led to this wrestling, or some would call a midlife crisis, that moved, um, because again, this was a life motivated by provision, and it just wasn't enough. The the Bible says, what does it matter to gain the whole world, even if you lose your soul? And so they went soul searching, had a midlife crisis, and moved from success to significance, is what the the book talks. uh, The book's subtitle is, Moving from Success to Significance. And this is really important because then it stopped considering just provision, but also considered passion and purpose. And basically, how can they use their time, talent, and treasure for God? Or even we see this outside of Christian culture, like, I just want to do stuff that I actually enjoy. Um, my dad, growing up, is an, uh, I, I dropped out of college successfully three times now, um, and my dad's a CPA accountant. And so we were, we were destined for tension. He's not a Christian, and I went into ministry. Like, there was just tension. And so when I dropped out the first time, um, my dad was not a fan. Like, he wasn't a fan of me trying to go into ministry because that's not a job that provides a lot. Um, and I don't know about y'all, but I feel like um, I know as I talk to young people, it seems like young people, they know that the mindset of, Christians or Americans especially is this provision mindset. We would not say that, but we functionally live it. For example, if you, um, a lot of times I ask young people, don't you feel like your parents would be so excited if you told them you wanted to be an architect or a lawyer or a doctor or a banker or just any job that made incredible money? Don't you think they'd be excited about that? And most of the time they're like, yes, absolutely. Like some of our worst fear is if our kids would Lee, I, I had a guy once come up to me and say, Grant, my worst fear happened. My daughter loves Jesus so much that she's going to go and be a missionary. And, and he was joking, but he kind of wasn't joking. Is we, we don't like that unknown. I mean, if uh, one of our kids is like going to law school or going to be a doctor or going to do this, think, um, think uh, that Robin Williams movie with, uh, what is it, Dead Poet Society? Whereas he, the father worked so hard to provide a better life for his kids, put him in that school to get a great, I think he's going to be a doctor, a lawyer, and his kid's like, no, actually, I want to do theater arts. And he's at, like, this really nice school that's not designed for theater arts. Um, and his dad's like, no, I've worked way too hard to get you here. And so, basically, I guess, let me show real quick, I think this tension that's happening is that This midlife crisis is something that they're seeing in this provision piece. And what's happening is they want to move that uh, midlife crisis of thinking about significance. And instead of thinking about that at at the end of their life, they want to think about it at the beginning of their life. 
Does that shift make sense? And so it shifts that I'm not just trying to get a job or a major at, at a college that makes a difference. I want to, I mean, to make some good money. I want to make a difference now. And that's really hard to gauge and measure because you don't know if it's going to pan out and work out. Like, um, if that person going to med school or law school, like I said, went to their parents and said, actually, I want to drop out of trying to be a lawyer. I know I've gone to three years of school, dad, or mom. I know I've been in school to try to be a doctor or a banker or whatever. It may be good job architect, but I think I want to be a church planter. Or I think God's calling me to be a worship leader. Or I think that, I think God's calling me to go be a missionary. And all of a sudden American Christian parents are like, hold on, hold on, uh, don't before you just drop out of school suddenly, like don't do anything urgent. Please can we pray about this? Let's give it a couple weeks. Like we all of a sudden really want to be prayerful. And it's funny is like I'm thinking, man, is the enemy trying to we gotta pray about is the enemy trying to convince me to be a church planner? Like, is the enemy trying to convince me to be a missionary? Like, is the enemy in this kind of way? That's such a unique strategy for the enemy to take. And um, my point is that like we don't pray so hard when it's like God calling us to be an architect or calling us to be a lawyer or a doctor. But if it's calling us to go be a missionary, we gotta really test it. Like put out a fleece less every day for a week or a month or forever until you get your 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 masters. Then you can go and do what God's called you to do because uh, we just want to make sure the enemy is not calling you to be a worship leader. Um, do you get what I'm saying, y'all? Like that provision and passion tension. Again, if you were in the last breakout, the irony is I don't know if there's ever been a generation in the last hundred years that actually wants to be the church as much as this generation in the thing holding us back is Christians. Like is our culture that we think that somehow God called us to be a lamb among wolves that never have to go be among wolves. Like, or that we, I don't know, need to be a light among the light, not in the darkness. Like that we are entitled to that that surely god will not be calling me to do hard things like um it's just so how do we read the bible like you realize all 12 of the disciples died like of course i guess one got to stick around for a long time but um (laughs) i just i forgot about that but i was like yeah he did um so here's my point is how do we shift this uh tension and reconcile that for some of you guys that are older, or uh, if you weren't in the last one, chronologically superior, because I know you guys don't like old people. Um, for y'all that are chronologically superior, I know some of you are like, hey, this millennial kid is talking about passion. Sounds great. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of passionate young people that are absolutely broke. Mm-hmm. And you're right. You are absolutely right. Because the answer is not to swing the pendulum to the other side. Um and, and I would say, Lord knows, nobody was coming out of the Great Depression thinking, oh, you know what, I'm not going to take that job because I'm not passionate about that work. They had to do whatever they had to do to put food on the table. Because, um, again, my generation, just to break this down, um, my generation, you talk about this system, it doesn't even really work that well for young people. Like college. College has a better guarantee of putting your kids into debt than getting them a job. That. Would we all agree that getting a bachelor's does not set you apart as much as it did 30 years ago? I mean, yeah. Job, there's a lot of young people that grew up with fathers especially, but just parents that did jobs that they absolutely hated for years, but it did put food on the table. But then they come around and then they like have this midlife crisis. Like my dad hated when I dropped out of college. Now, 
Real quick, how much time do I have? Okay. Here's the irony is the passion and provision pieces. It's not just letting them have their passion, and it's also not just going towards provision. For my dad and my parents, they got on to me. When I dropped out of college, I tried to move back home. But the first night I'm there, my mom was all about it. Oh, yeah, mijo, come on. I always act like my mom's so little Mexican. Um, but, like, she's cool with it. I'm at dinner. My dad comes home from work. Um, and he doesn't say anything. He just grabs my bags in my old room and just starts putting it in the front yard. And I'm, like, asking him, Dad, what are you doing? Like, I, at first I didn't notice what he was doing. And then I started noticing. He was, like, taking my stuff out. Um, and I, my dad's South African. So, culturally, he's just different, too. Um, and so I asked my dad, what are you doing? And he's like, Grant. You dropped out of college. You made that decision. When you made that decision, you made the decision to grow up and to find your own house and to go find your own job. And what you're deciding what's next in life, but it's not living here at our house. And he wasn't laughing like I am when I'm saying that. Like, like, um, I, and I was like, Dad, you're the worst. Like, you know how many of my friends let their kids live with them? Give me a week at least or a month. I have friends that lived like... They, they're still there right now. Like, this was, like, they are there. And so how can you not let me come and live with you? Um, he wouldn't give me one night, not even one night. And, and here's what I'll say is um, there's this real bond that has to be around passion and provision because my dad, at the time, I didn't realize provision is how he communicated love and care and intentionality. Um, and my generation, by the way, has not done the best job of realizing that's why you're pushing us. But also, we need you to realize that there, we, we want more. Because the irony is my dad, now, um, they sold their house. He quit being a CPA. And they bought an RV. And they just travel America. <laughs> and do, like, really odd jobs. And you just said it's awesome. A lot of people, older people, too, say, that's so cool. And I'm like, my parents are so poor like my parent my dad borrowed money from me two years ago i was like are you serious i shouldn't let you borrow any of this for that time and and but i'm like but i appreciate that they're doing what they love because they're like you know what we were just in this like system that we weren't even happy we're just doing because that's what we knew and now they do what they actually want to do and and here's the irony is i would say i found that most of the older generation thinks yes so you work hard so you can get to the point where you get to do what you love to do and I would say I don't think this generation wants to do anything hard until it's what they love to do. Somewhere it's got to be meeting in the middle. Um, and what I'm not saying is just let them do what they're passionate about. I would say make them work to the point where they are working. Um, they have to be passionate enough to work hard to get there, if that makes sense. For example, I think a lot of us are getting in the way of our kids maturing because we're so helpful towards them that we're actually enabling them um the fact uh there's a there's an old dude named john armott and by old i mean like dead old like like 1800s like um like his name's john armott uh he wrote this dude won a nobel peace prize he mobilized thousands of students to give up college or or even take a gap year to go be a missionary um all, and he wrote a book called The Evangelization of the World in This Generation. Um, and again, mobilized thousands of kids in college to go be missionaries and uh, won a Nobel Peace Prize for doing it in the 1800s. And he said as he got closer to death that he believed that the number one or the greatest hindrance to world evangelization is Christian parents, is what he said. Is that Christian parents actually are withholding because he had to convince so many parents to let their kids go and be missionaries. 
And I'm just like, what kind of culture are we in where that's even the case? I know y'all see it. I know you're probably... It's, I don't know what it's like because I'm not a parent. I do want to acknowledge that for sure. But, but again, if you got to let your gener- the next generation fail towards Christ. And I want to quickly say this too, especially for my dad, having that happen. I see it so differently now is um, that night I'm thinking, okay, where am I going to go live? What job am I going to get? You think I got to pick my passion job the next day? I worked at Papado's for like a year and a half. And I don't, I never even, I never want to go back to that season ever of working at Papado's. But I will say, I, when I look at the seasons in my life that I was closest to God, that's definitely one of the top seasons. The seasons, like if you think to yourself, what are the seasons in your life where you had such a hunger for God's word? You were so reliant on him. You had nothing but him. A lot of you guys have. It's seasons of difficulty. And and if you always save your kids from those difficult seasons or save them from failing or give them participation trophies, because that's y'all's fault, not ours, um, even though they make fun of us for it, um, I would go back to myself at six and say, bro, do not receive this gift. They are going to make fun of you for decades after this. Um, even though you're six, we had, it's not like we came up with a committee at five years old and told you all. We were young. Y'all did it. And we didn't know that that wasn't normal until y'all then twisted it on us and made fun of you guys are this... I don't know how y'all don't do the math on that, that you guys did that. Um, all that to say, if we have this participation trophy, parenting, Christian mix-in, we are going to stop world evangelization from a generation that want, is dying to be a part of a cause. And then they're actually leaving the church, but I would say they're joining causes. And they're joining nonprofits, and they're marching, and they're, jo- they're, they're dying to be a part of something. They're looking for Coney one day. They're looking for, uh, they're putting an X on their hand once a year. Um, they're not the best at commitment. Like, Coney's still out there. Um, and um, and they'll put an ice bucket on their head um, that one time. And even though ALS is still a problem, they, they don't do it anymore. But uh, they'll even they'll try to find Coney. They'll try to find Pokemon. They will do all types of things. Now, here's the thing is they're not looking just for causes. Because if they were, all those things are still causes that exist today. They're looking for cause communities. They're looking for where is a community that I can join that is the church. And once the community went away with Coney and with Pokemon, it's not like you can't still go head out and find some Pokemon. It's just no one else is doing it anymore, so they're not doing it anymore. Does that make sense? It's so key is that it's not, I get young, older people saying, why don't young people volunteer if they're so cause-oriented? Because you're just asking them individually. You have to create a community cause-oriented group. Does that make sense? And so um, real quick on this last thing about saving your kid. If you save them from difficult seasons and failure and you always enable them, you could be saving them from the Savior. Yes. Because, again, the most intimate seasons of our life, some of them tend to be difficult seasons. Um, there's a verse, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for the Lord is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. This is huge for us, is that it's in the valley of the shadow of death then we learn not to fear evil and we're not scared because we realize God is even with me there and his rod and his staff comfort us. But I think some millennial kids and Gen Z kids are going to read it this way, that they're going to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for mom is with me. Her purse and second chances, they enable me. Psalms 23, 4. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) There he is. Okay. Yeah, that's it. And so I'm going to I'm going to bring up that's again the uh in the book I talk way way more oh God, 
give me one second to get this from the book. Yeah, yeah, I do want to. Um, I do want to say one thing that I put in the book that uh, I would say to help in this situation is it's not in order to reconcile these. I would say it's not that you just ignore one for the other. It's that you switch the order from starting with their passion, starting with their purpose, leading to provision. And so questions like, I put 15 questions for each in here, in that how much questions and concern have you shared for their passion and their purpose, and is it equal to provision? Because if all you just say is, you need to do this, or go to this school, or do this internship, or do all this, but you don't give them the why, that whole, like, because I told you so, is not going to convince them for the long term. And so, like, what makes you feel alive? What job would you take a drastic pay cut for? What could you talk about for hours? What subject did you enjoy most in school? What makes you different? What bothers you when you see it done poorly? What problem or injustice breaks your heart? These questions that are igniting or narrowing their passion, because they're very lost generation spiritually and lost generation, like, career-wise, too. And so you, you could help them with that. Then there's, there's purpose questions. I'll leave that if you guys can check the book out. Is, um, and, but then provision questions. Now you've spent time leading them to their passion, leading them to their purpose, that you can now ask questions. And it's actually extremely helpful because then they want to know, how do I get there? And now you're asking them questions like, what sacrifices will you have to make? What extra time will I have to give? Um, what kind of mentors will you, I need to seek out? What kind of friends will I need to surround myself with? What kind of friends will I need to avoid? What time wasters will I have to cut? What's the minimum salary I can live with for now? What education will I have to pursue? All of a sudden, I'm like, okay, in order to get here, which you've been guiding me, mom and dad, or pastor, um, or mentor, or discipler, now I have to do these hard things. But we've all done something we're extremely passionate about, that even if it is hard work, or laborious, or takes hours, if it's our passion, we can get lost in it. Like, it doesn't even feel like work. It's easy. It's like desirable. Like we can't wait to get back to that project. If you can help them there, I don't think this generation is lazy. I think most of them are uninspired by the by the dream and vision we're trying to give them. And so uh, this is again one way to just reconcile um, this generation to the generation before because it's not either or. Um, and I again apologize that, and we'll say I'm finishing. We would not be able to do and pursue our passion and our purpose as a generation if it wasn't for the, the, all the work and all the blood, sweat, and tears that your generation did to give us the, the foundation to even consider our passions. Does that make sense? And so wouldn't the enemy win if he's like, now that we finally got you here, well, you could even consider these types of things because of the luxuries I've provided you to even get to go to college or get to consider this or even have these type of options and parents that support you that we would then be upset when they actually want to take advantage of what we set them up for. Um, and so that's where we need we need uh, unity in that area. Awesome. Yeah, that cord. We're going to move this. Um, thanks, Grant. Okay, this is good stuff. Um, we're, we pulled a little bit of an audible for you guys today, so I'm going to switch slides while we get ready. But I will say that as we're talking about the reconciled church and the future of the church in that, thank you, Luke, um, one thing that just... I wanted to share period is that uh, we live in a day and time where we're in flood, like we have an influx of information. And so um, this generation gets their access to news, um, to truth, to every single thing you can imagine on their phone, usually scrolling through Instagram. I know a lot of 
you guys are on Facebook now. My parents are so heavily on Facebook. It's insane. Um, and, you know, they're, they're up at night on their iPads looking through Facebook, talking to their friends. I mean, we're all getting an influx of information. And the reality is that, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't coming face to face with our humanity and our sin and the brokenness of this world the way we are today. And because we are, the next generation not only is the most diverse generation that's ever walked the earth, but they are also coming face to face with these realities. And so they demand a reconciled church, a reconciled church that isn't afraid to talk about some of these things, that isn't afraid to create a safe space for people to um, unpack things like, um, you know, how do I feel about, you know, whether it's things that are happening in the world on the news or their sexuality or women in positions and authority. And so I think it's important that as we continue to talk about these things and you think about the next generation, that each of you really begin to recognize that this, our generation, we have so much at our fingertips, which actually fuels this, this whole message that Grant talked about, which is we want to, we want to pursue significance first in order to change the world. Why? Because we're seeing the brokenness of the world firsthand in our faces in a way that you guys didn't see, in a way that the next generation is going to see even more. So that's truly what's fueling the, the demand for being reconciled, the demand for we need to know what truth is, we need to know what the Word of God says about this, we need to know what our response should be as Christians, not... Um, be good and don't sin and live a pure life and and all of these rules. We need to know how that lives out in our day to day life. And I need to understand how to how to reconcile a relationship with someone that doesn't look like me, as well as how to walk that out in my day to day life. Does that make sense? So, um, so me personally, um, one thing that I'll just say, going to shift the conversation a bit, but um, I am a Latina and I. Get the opportunity. I'm single. I'm 31, and I get the opportunity to do this a lot, and I'm extremely passionate about it. And it's very rare. A lot of spaces that I get to go to, a lot of women don't look like me and don't have the opportunity to have a platform. And so I wanted to share some of this time to also just talk about women in the church and the future of women in the church and the role that that's going to play and that is already playing out today. And so um, I'll start by saying I don't want to have a theological conversation with you guys on you know, your viewpoints on that, wherever your stance is theologically. That's not what I want to talk about today. I simply want to take a few minutes to talk about the future of the church is extremely diverse and the future of the church does include women in a way that it never has before. And so how do, how do we um, create space for other women? How do we have the awareness for that? How do we, um, as Gen Z, many of you guys probably saw the research by Barna that they did that they released earlier this year. Gen Z is the most diverse generation to ever walk the earth and they are the least church generation as well. And so when I say diverse, they're diverse ethnically. We see a lot of interracial marriages that we didn't see before. Um, just so much diversity in a way where they go to school every day. Um, my nieces who are 17 and 14, they live in Austin, Texas. So super weird city. Um, but I was talking to them and their friends are like on, on their track team, black girls, Asian girls, mixed girls. I mean, everything. And they're all besties. And I'm like... This is, I didn't even know what this was like growing up. My town was divided, white and Mexican. There was nothing else in that town. And so now they're growing up in a world where they don't even see color. Um, it's just part of who they are and how they live. And in the same way, the world has really recently created a space for the voice of a woman 
um, to rise. You guys have seen it with the Me Too movement. You've seen it even in our, our, our culture. I can say the phrase, go home. And many of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Um, we've seen it on a day-to-day basis. But the reality as well is that in the rise of a voice of a woman, culture is telling us that women have to rise and men must fall. Culture is telling us that in order for a woman's voice to be heard, that a man must be must be um, talked down upon, belittled. He must be exposed. He must be uh, brought down so we can go up. And that is not biblical, and that's not truth. And that's not the word of God. We need men. We need the covering. We need you to walk with us. We need you to teach us. And so I'm sharing this about being reconciled because I lead women. I have the honor of leading some of the most diverse, dynamic girls that are featured on Kim Kardashian's Instagram come to me and want to talk to me about things. And they're looking at the world as a voice of how to be a woman and to lead. And we need you as men to help us desperately and to take us under your wing and to do it aligned with biblical truth. Because I am not going to have a generation of women say that we rise so men fall. I want a generation of women that honor and respect men and thank them for the platform and opportunity that we have to have an equal voice, to have a voice that communicates as well, to have a voice that's sound doctrinally, that communicates the truth well. And so my heart in in talking about this with you guys is to say that the world is already there. The voice of a woman, it's there, and the narrative is there. And so I want to encourage you and your spheres and your spaces to create space for the women in your church to have a voice and your sphere to have a voice, but how to do that and to honor them well so that we can influence culture and not have culture influence us, right? Um, And so quickly, I'm not going to take a ton ton of time. They're going to have questions. Um, Ways that you can support women... Um, go to breakouts led by women at events. It's really easy. Um, most w- female, only female-led breakouts, if my name and Grant's name wasn't on this, if it was just me, it would just be women in here. Um, I'm going to be pretty honest, maybe a handful of men. And I can't tell you how many breakouts I go to at conferences where a woman's leading and it's only women in her breakout. But you have no idea how encouraging and supportive and uplifting it is to see men come to a breakout that you're leading as a female. Um, Don't limit women to solely speak on women or things that women deal with. Um, At a panel discussion on a topic, invite a woman who's a business leader, who's doing something amazing at your church, and invite her to talk about how she does that and runs her home. Uh, Don't limit her to just talk about how she, you know, manages her home or like uh, emotional things. Get a woman to talk about beyond women issues and women things. Take her out of just her women's sphere and put her in other places as well. Um, Ask a woman you trust to proof your message. This is a big one. You would be surprised. I'll tell you what I look for when I go for a church and I'm listening to men, men teachers. One, I want to know if it's the word being taught first and foremost and taught exegetically and well. But secondly, I'm listening for your analogies. And, when, and how you talk about women. Is it a joke about how you forgot to pick up the dry cleaning and your, your wife told you to go get it? Is it a joke about picking the kids up or running an errand for your wife? Or is it, my wife is so faithful and I see her every morning doing this. Like, my wife is the most persistent person and here's how she does this. Or my wife or, or my, my friend, my sister, uh, examples that are beyond putting a woman in a small box because if we're honest with each other, with one another, 
Who a woman was 50 years ago and the image is not who a woman is today. Many of the women in your churches, in your sphere, in your influence are are girl bosses, for lack of better words. Um, they're, yeah. they're running their own businesses. They're, they're single. They're older. They're not married yet. Or they're single moms. Or they're, they're moms and they're working and doing a ton of things as well. So you've got to be aware of how are you communicating about women? What examples are you giving? When you're sharing um, passages of scripture, how often do you use a female character? And what are the qualities that you use about her? Is it just the simple ones that we hear, like, you know, Mary at Christmas or Ruth with Boaz, or are you talking about um, Jael, I think it was, who literally, like, got the guy and, you know, put the nail in his head and she was a, a bad A, you know? Like, why don't we talk about her and not just, you know, some of the other ones? You know, be have a woman you trust prove those messages and help you really understand how to reach your entire audience because the reality is most of the people in your church are women and they're bringing people to church, so you want to connect with them well. Um, read books, read, like read books by women. Um, what, what's the last book you read by a female author? I mean, period. You would be surprised at how many female authors there are and how amazing they are, how you can support them by that. Um, I mentioned this in the last session, but bring your female leaders to conferences or events. Um, several of my mentors have been men and I think a lot of people would find that really controversial, but ultimately you as a man need to be bold and confident enough and communicate boundaries with your spouse or with your church on how can I bring a woman into a sphere with me who's a leader to show her that she has equal opportunity. In the business world, I'll give a simple example. Grant and I work a lot together. He's about to be engaged. People always assume we're together because we're a male and a female and we're single, but we're committed to breaking that stigma of working together as a male and a female in ministry and leading alongside one another. You would never make that assumption in the real world, but people make it in ministry. So how can you do that well? We've had so many conversations about boundaries, how to honor one another, how to honor his future spouse, how to honor my future spouse, but how do we still go on mission together well, regardless of our sexual orientation, right? So I think that's something that we don't think about often, but how do we break that because the world has already broken that in a lot of spaces? Um, create space for women at the table. Um, this is very simple, but it's you'd be surprised as well. Um, a lot of events that we go to or things that happen, it's like, you know, you go to an event and then the men go out afterwards, whether it's for golf. And I'm not a golfer, um, so I'm not going to go golf. But if you invite me, I'll drive the car and at least be a part of the conversations, right? Um, or they're going to go have whiskey and cigars somewhere. Be cognizant of the women leaders in your sphere and try to include them in a way where how can I provide a seat at the table for them because their voice is just as influential and just as important. And, and if you start to think that way, you'll start to recognize many of the allowances and sacrifices women leaders make in your spheres just to have a voice and just to be included. So if you make room for them by being inclusive in some of the after things that you do, where relationship really, like everything moves at the speed of relationship. So if you're not creating a space for a woman to be a part of that relationship, then she's not going to have the influence at the level as a male would in that space. Um, and then and then last, um, allow her to be a leading voice of truth. Um, just by creating, again, a space and a platform for her, if your church allows it, give her the mic um, to be on stage to do things, whether it's announcements, if that's the least you can do, or if it's prayer or if it's actually speaking on a Sunday and and teaching her how to really break through the message and be aligned with what your church agrees with. But I think these are really simple 
tangible things that you can do. And the world has already created some spaces that are not healthy in this. So I wanted it. It's my passion. Women are my passion. Ministry with women is my passage, passion. Minority women, specifically in these spaces, is a huge passion of mine as well and of ours as a ministry. So these are just some practical ways. And all of this ties back to the world that we live in, the brokenness we're face-to-face with, the reality of it. How do we create space for that and a reconciled space for that as well? So that's all I've got. So we're going to do a Q&A. If you guys can give it up to her. Um, I just, if you don't hear this, I mean, uh, she just kind of said, this is the most diverse generation that's ever lived. This uh, Gen Z. It, if you don't, like, we make, we put, like, these little things in categories. Like, this is a discipleship conference. Then there's diversity and racial reconciliation conferences. Then there's like the marketplace leader conference. And I just think this generation coming up, is going to be a lot less of the sacred secular and compartment littleized like faith. It's we are, we don't have the luxury to be divided as much as other generations have, because there's not a lot of young Christian leaders. Um, and so there's, when we talk about reconciliation, I mean, it's reconciliation between generations. It's reconciliation between uh, different ethnic backgrounds. It's reconciliation between like gender roles or leadership, uh, if you don't have that, for me, I, I'm Mexican, South African, and I grew up predominantly around minorities. It wasn't until I got saved that I saw division as much as I saw it. It wasn't until I had to choose a church that I was like, where do I take my black and Mexican friends? Because i got to choose either a white church, but then these guys are going to get left out, or a black church, or a Mexican church. And so um, I think this has clearly been a big topic already, but uh, if we don't become a reconciled church in these areas and the world is ahead of us, it's going to disqualify the power of the gospel to the next generation because they're going to be like, for me, I remember as a 16 year old and 18 year old, like thinking bars and clubs are more diverse than the churches I'm trying to send people to. And I'm like the world, not just like these nonprofit leaders that aren't led by Christ. I'm talking about clubs were more diverse than the church eventually I would say that's like going to lifetime fitness. I don't know if that's nationally everywhere, but in my city, lifetime fitness costs a lot of money. I would not pay that kind of money. If I walked in and finally get in here, I've been at like planet fitness for like $6 a month. And all of a sudden I, which the world. And then I go to the church or lifetime fitness. And I'm like, yo, I paid this much money, $125 or whatever. And then I see everyone is crazy obese here. Like it's actually worse here in the ministry of reconciliation that it's less reconciled than the world. That's why this is a very, very important topic. Um, and lastly, I'll say it's so much better when we are united. I know we know that, but like, uh, I'm a, we're both going to a wedding. Um, to one of our best friends is getting married. And what I found is, and I always like to use this analogy, is when I go to a white wedding, and what I mean by that is two white people getting married um, with mostly white friends, then I always know what to expect. It's usually going to be like a lot of Pinterest inspiration type of stuff like um it's gonna be very like the girl's gonna cry a lot like when the dad comes and like the father-daughter dance is like oh my god like it's and especially the dancing the dancing is so predictable i know and it's two white people that are getting married the dancing uh is gonna be predictable especially it's mostly white people white people love music or songs at weddings that have instructions 
And so they'll be like, oh, that's my song. And then it's like, to the left, to the left, to the left. Oh, wait, know what I do next? Oh, good thing. He says, to the right, to the right, to the right. Okay, now what do I do? Slide to the left. Slide to the right. Two hops each time. It's like, it's almost like a kid's song. It's like, this is my song. Come on, come on. I'm like, babe, I hate these songs. Like, I hate them with a passion. I will not be caught doing these songs. Do the stanky leg. Okay, now when do I do it next? Okay, do the stanky leg. It's just like so much here's what happens if you go to a black wedding like it now especially there's a difference between black and then African if you go to an African wedding I went to one it was like an hour and a half late and I'm like they're not even on the property the, the people getting married um, so it might be a little late but the food and the the dancing I'm like yo I'm about to learn two new dance moves like this is gonna be some awesome music and it's just it's a different cultural vibe Mexican I go to a Mexican wedding the food the hospitality like people just trying to serve it's it's these different benefits and things you see. But if I go to a biracial or just very intentionally diverse friendship wedding, that's when it's like, yo, we're going to be on time. Yeah. We're going to have great Pinterest look. We're going to have great food. We're going to have all this. And that is what heaven's going to be like. Yeah. And that's what Sunday should be like, where it doesn't make sense why we would be unified because uh, there is tension here. And so with that, let's let's do some questions. Um, I know we did more than just racial tension and racial unity. Um, but there, yeah, there's there's a lot of unity that we would lastly say that a divided nation needs a united church. Yeah. And so that's what the next generation is excited about is a united church. Questions, if you can keep them to like 10 to 30 seconds. With the, with the prevalence of sexual abuse and sexual impropriety, in evangelical life, what are some recommendations you've got for like healthy boundaries between you two? Yes, mm-hmm. And in ministry, when male and female, if we're going to work together and you know, and go to conferences, do these things together, what are the clear clear boundaries that we need to set? Give us some. Yeah, I think um, I'll, we'll give you some of ours. I mean, we don't uh, stay anywhere together, obviously. Um, when we travel in a vehicle, that's something. If we're going to meetings, that's okay. Um, beyond that, though, I mean, we're not. We don't text really unless it's work related. We, we do, but I'll say a um, couple things that I know. Uh, I am the one in the relationship too, and um, she's. You put me on the bus. She's often on in relationships. <laughs> But she's the last one. I don't know if you are there. She's like, oh yeah, and uh, Granson uh, celebrate recovery. I'm like, God, <laughs> uh, so I a couple things was yeah, not staying at the same place, and it's so hard because it would be easier. Like the place she stayed has another extra bedroom, um, but not staying at the same place. I for me personally, am I don't like the idea. It's so hard because Billy Graham, but like that rule of not having a girl come with you. I remember meeting a girl who runs a nonprofit that's a pro life organization, just killing it. Which it means doing a good job, just in case you don't know what that means. Um, and and yeah, yeah. And and real talk is that uh, she said, Grant, it's so hard for us to fundraise. I'm like, well, why don't you do this or this or that? And as I was trying to give her examples, she's like, Grant, I can't do those things. Like the way you build relationships with older high net worth donors is all through country club, it's through jogging with one of your wealthy donors, it's through these things where they invite you one-on-one with all guys. And I was like, dang, yeah, they would never invite a girl. Like, I know they wouldn't, Uh, especially a young girl, especially a young single girl. And I just realized the Billy Graham rule can actually create a ceiling for a lot of women. And so I'm just saying, I'm not saying so just be oblivious to that and like do, it's it's being, I'm going to over-communicate to the people involved and know that this is happening, but uh, we always bring someone in if we're going to go and speak somewhere else. Um, 
And uh, I don't know. I'm trying to I, think. I'll say too, just for uh, practicality's sake, we both have really good accountability with with uh, people in our lives. So, I mean, to be really blunt with you guys, we've known each other for 12 years, been friends for 12 years. And I've had friends at different seasons in my life be like, hey, is everything cool? Are you catching feelings or not? Because if you are, then you don't need to be working with this guy or you need to have a conversation. Like, how's your heart? You know, so I think having really healthy communication and boundary, we we are we have a pretty open relationship. We've worked together for a long time. But even little things, Luke's married on our staff. And so he travels a lot with us. We have two single women on our staff and then he's in a relationship. He's married. And so we were just in Colorado it was him with all us girls, Grant's girlfriend, me, and another girl. We're all, we're going to go to the hot tub and hang out. And, of course, he's not going to come to the hot tub and hang out. Like, that's a simple boundary. He's married. That that doesn't make sense. But I think it's being able to have really honest conversation and have good accountability in place to where that person doesn't feel offended, but you're just calling the elephant to the room of, like, hey, there are things that could happen. There are things that we recognize sin is in the world. But I would say our group is unique in that we have had really great discipleship, really great accountability. We are in our late 20s. We're not 21 and 22, still figuring it out. So I would say if they're young, you've got to have high accountability, high follow through, and just ensuring that you talk through what those boundaries are and that they honor those. Yes, sir. How would you recommend for somebody that lives in a small country town that's not diverse really at all? Yeah. No, that's great. That's a great question. You know, uh, so I once asked, uh, I once asked, Tim Keller uh, is one of the guys, I was asking a lot of New York leaders, I was speaking at this conference in New York and uh, doing this panel, or like moderating it, and I was asking, who's the guy who's been bringing leaders together the most in New York? And they were saying, actually, Tim Keller. They was like, he's been bringing pastors together for a while now. And I was like, really? He's so busy. Like, the number one reason why we don't disciple is not because we don't think it's important. It's because we're so busy. The number one reason we don't create more unity in our city among pastors and help them, it's not because we don't care. It's because we're busy. Like, And I asked him, I said, how do you, Tim, like, give so much time to the kingdom and helping other pastors when you got books and a family and kids and uh, travel and you're raising money for other church plants all over the globe? And he said two things. He said, one, I viewed uh, unity as like tithing. He's like, I got to give my 10% to the kingdom. Um, and so it really helped with time. He's like, I give 10% of my time to other churches. And so maybe it is intentional of like, I'm going to try to find the few that are different um, or look different. And how can I get behind what they're doing and see like, and I'm talking to my board or my elders and deacons or whatever the system looks like of how I'm actually supposed to give 10% to the kingdom, not just my castle. Um, it's just what God's called us to do. And then two, he used it. I mean, it's Tim Keller, so he's like smart. Is um, He said, uh, when we don't do that, he said, we're kind of like cells in the body because we're like churches in the body, the whole body. And he said, cells in the body that only benefit themselves are actually called cancer in the human body. And he said, that's the same thing for churches that only benefit themselves. They eventually become cancer to the human body, the church body. And he says, so we tie 10% of our time to, to the kingdom. Now, I will say, don't feel a guilt that we got to be like this when our neighborhood doesn't look like this. I would say, and Durin Gray, actually, I've heard say this is, um, how do you be a little bit more diverse? Not crazy diverse, not like, how the heck are these guys driving from like 25 minutes outside of town to be here? Um, it's more like, how are we just a little bit more diverse that it gives people a taste of the kingdom? Um, and, and I would say build a relationship with one or two people um, and help, again, with 
couple of different pastors in the city and how do you build a group there and I feel like God leads to what the practical outcomes look like out of the relationships like she said we say this often is that the gospel moves at the speed of relationships through discipleship through unity at the end of the day it all comes down to relational equity one more question I'm discipling a 22 year old young guy and he wants to be in a relationship with a female so bad it's hard to keep him focused on other kingdom issues I mean Grant Uh, you know what? I literally sat down with the kid I'm discipling. He's 20 yesterday, and he's the same way. And I feel like the hard thing with um, the church, and I don't know how to say this in like a nice way, is there's been such a heavy, and honestly, Monica could say something to this too. There's such a heavy emphasis on being married before you matter in the church that you also have to, I think, at some point, like bring them back down to earth and, and say, this is the wisdom that we're lacking, right? And I, I'm only three and a half years into my marriage, but for someone to go, um, you don't know what you're getting into. Uh, these are the things that you need to work through. And I'm discipling you, and I want you to know you matter right now to what we're doing in our church, whether you're married or not. So, like, getting married is great. I'm for that. If you have someone that you're, like, interested in, I want to meet her. However, your impact doesn't change on what we're doing, whether you're married or not. Uh, And so I think a lot of it, too, is figuring out what is his heart behind wanting to be married yeah. uh, because I think that's one of the bigger issues I find is so many guys want to get married for the purpose of standing on a stage with a mic. Cause I know, unfortunately a lot of churches do not let single people for the most part have opportunities to preach or to do any of these things. And I'm just like, I mean, Paul was a pretty good preacher, you know, I, like, he, he, he did okay. Um, uh, you know, I mean like he, you know, not my cup of tea necessarily, but he did pretty good. And so Monica, I don't know. That's like a, you're passionate about that to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I think he said it, I think it's just getting to the heart of it. And obviously like, God is a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. We see that all throughout scripture. And so I think the sooner you can get to the root issue of that and address the heart of that and allow him to really identify in his heart, what is it that God's called and created me to do? It's probably tied to him thinking marriage will will get him there faster. And it won't. You know, that's not not going to happen. So, yes. In the, con- in the context of that discussion, you know, you've talked a little bit about having some men mentors mm-hmm. and some kind of unusual opportunities for leadership. Um, did that happen because you you pursued it or because it was, was given to you or a combination thereof? I think a combination thereof. Um, I will say a lot of I, I, you probably don't hear this from someone of color, but I had a lot of privilege, I think, growing up. And my dad is an entrepreneur and businessman. And so he just taught us a lot of things, how to communicate really well with people and pursue opportunities. And I think that was part one part of it. The church I went to saw something in me and they said, we want to invest in you. We believe in you. And it was a man that said that, not a woman that said it, which was rare. The mentor couple I talked about in my last session um, the, I have a stronger relationship with her husband than I do with him. And he's, he's, do with her, sorry. And he's really been the one to really mentor, give me opportunities, develop me, coach me more. Um, and then honestly, Grant's been a huge advocate of that. Grant, um, he has had a ton of opportunity in this space and he's always inviting me into it, recommending me, opening doors for me. 
I think if if a young female can find a man that's passionate about that, that says, I believe in you and I believe in the voice God's put upon you and I believe in your gifting, and then they put their money where their mouth is to actually include you, then that will open doors and create space and it becomes a ripple effect of that. How essential is that for churches to be aware of young women are going to want opportunities and we need to visit that? I mean, how is that a big deal to millennials? It, I think it's a big deal because the world is creating a ton of opportunity for them, and so they're going to go to the world if there's not opportunity in the church. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that's the next one, right? Yeah, we're talking about that more in the next one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, we, we got to go, but we love y'all. Communicate to the people involved and know that this is happening, but uh, we always bring someone in if we're going to go and speak somewhere else. Um, and uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think. I'll say, too, just for uh, practicality's sake, we both have really good accountability with with uh, people in our lives. So, I mean, to be really blunt with you guys, we've known each other for 12 years, been friends for 12 years. And I've had friends at different seasons in my life be like, hey, is everything cool? Or are you catching feelings or not? Because if you are, then you don't need to be working with this guy or you need to have a conversation. Like, how's your heart? You know, so I think having really healthy communication and boundary, we... We, are, we have a pretty open relationship. We've worked together for a long time. But even little things, Luke's married on our staff, and so he travels a lot with us. We have two single women on our staff, and then he's in a relationship. He's married. And so we were just in Colorado. It was him with all us girls, Grant's girlfriend, me, and another girl. We're, we're going to go to the hot tub and hang out. And, of course, he's not going to come to the hot tub and hang out. Like, that's a simple boundary. He's married. That That doesn't make sense. But I think it's being able to have really honest conversation and have good accountability in place to where that person doesn't feel offended, but you're just calling the elephant to the room of like, hey, there are things that could happen. There are things that we recognize sin is in the world. But I would say our group is unique in that we have had really great discipleship, really great accountability. We are in our late 20s. We're not 21 and 22, still figuring it out. So I would say if they're young, you've got to have high accountability high follow through and just ensuring that you talk through what those boundaries are and that they honor those. Yes, sir. How would you recommend for somebody that lives in a small country town yeah. that's not diverse really at all? Yeah. Um, no, that's great. That's a great question. You know, uh, so I once asked, uh, I once asked Tim Keller, uh, is one of the guys I was asking a lot of New York leaders. I was speaking at this conference in New York and, uh, doing this panel or like moderating it. And I was asking who's the guy who's been bringing leaders together the most in New York. And they are saying, actually, Tim Keller. They was like, he's been bringing pastors together for a while now. And I was like, really? He's so busy. Like, the number one reason why we don't disciple is not because we don't think it's important. It's because we're so busy. The number one reason we don't create more unity in our city among pastors and help them, it's not because we don't care. It's because we're busy. Like, And I asked him, I said, how do you, Tim, like, give so much time to the kingdom and helping other pastors when you got books and uh, family and kids and uh, travel and you're raising money for other church plants all over the globe. And he said two things. He said, one, I viewed uh, unity as like tithing. He's like, I got to give my 10% to the kingdom. Um, and so it really helped with time. He's like, I give 10% of my time to other churches. And so maybe it is intentional. Of like, I'm going to try to find the few that are different um, or look different, and how can I get behind what they're doing, and see, like, and I'm talking to my board, or my elders, and deacons, or whatever the system looks like, of how I'm actually supposed to give 10% to 
to the kingdom, not just my castle. Um, it's just what God's called us to do. And then two, he used it. I mean, it's Tim Keller, so he's like smart. Is um, he said uh, when we don't do that, he said we're kind of like cells in the body because we're like churches in the body, the whole body. And he said cells in the body that only benefit themselves are actually called cancer in the human body. And he said that's the same thing for churches that only benefit themselves. They eventually become cancer to the human body, the church body. And he says so we tie ten percent of our time to to the kingdom. Now I will say. Don't feel a guilt that we got to be like this when our neighborhood doesn't look like this. I would say, and Derwin Gray actually I've heard say this, is um, how do you be a little bit more diverse? Not crazy diverse, not like how the heck are these guys driving from like 25 minutes outside of town to be here? Um, it's more like how are we just a little bit more diverse that it gives people a taste of the kingdom? Um, and, and I would say build a relationship with one or two people um, and help, again, with a couple of different pastors in the city and how do you build a group there. And I feel like God leads to what the practical outcomes look like out of the relationships. Like she said, we say this often is that the gospel moves at the speed of relationships through discipleship, through unity. At the end of the day, it all comes down to relational equity. One more question, Gion. I'm discipling a 22-year-old young guy and he wants to be in a relationship with a female so bad it's hard <laughs> to keep him focused on other kingdoms. Grant. Uh, You know what? I literally sat down with the kid I'm discipling. He's 20 yesterday, and he's the same way. And I feel like the hard thing with um, the church, and I don't know how to say this in like a nice way, is there's been such a heavy, and honestly, Monica could say something to this too. There's such a heavy emphasis on being married before you matter in the church that you also have to, I think at some point, like bring them back down to earth and, and say, this is the wisdom that we're lacking. Right. And I, I'm only three and a half years into my marriage, but for someone to go, um, you don't know what you're getting into. Uh, these are the things that you need to work through. And I'm discipling you, and I want you to know you matter right now to what we're doing in our church, whether you're married or not. So, like, getting married is great. I'm for that. If you have someone that you're, like, interested in, I want to meet her. However, your impact doesn't change on what we're doing, whether you're married or not. Uh, And so I think a lot of it, too, is figuring out what is his heart behind wanting to be married Uh, because I think that's one of the bigger issues I find is so many guys want to get married for the purpose of standing on a stage with a mic. Because I know, unfortunately, a lot of churches do not let single people, for the most part, have opportunities to preach or to do any of these things. And I'm just like, I mean, Paul was a pretty good preacher, you know. I, like, he, he, he did okay. Um, uh, you know, I mean, like, he, you know, not my cup of tea necessarily, but he did pretty good. And so, Monica, I don't know, that's like a your passion about that to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I think he said it. I think it's just getting to the heart of it. And obviously, like, God is a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. We see that all throughout Scripture. And so I think the sooner you can get to the root issue of that and address the heart of that and allow him to really identify in his heart what is it that God's called and created me to do, it's probably tied to him thinking marriage will will get him there faster. And it won't. You know, that's not, <laughs> not going to happen. So, yes. In the, con- in the context of that discussion, you know, you've talked a little bit about having some men mentors mm-hmm. and some kind of unusual opportunities for leadership. Um, did that happen because you you pursued it or because it was, was given to you or a combination thereof? 
I think a combination thereof. Um, I will say a lot of, I, I, you probably don't hear this from someone of color, but I had a lot of privilege, I think, growing up. And that my dad is an entrepreneur and businessman. And so he just taught us a lot of things, how to communicate really well with people and pursue opportunities. And I think that was part one part of it. The church I went to saw something in me and they said, we want to invest in you. We believe in you. And it was a man that said that, not a woman that said it, which was rare. The mentor couple I talked about in my last session, um, the, I have a stronger relationship with her husband than I do with him. And he's, he's do with her, sorry. And he's really been the one to really mentor, give me opportunities, develop me, coach me more. Um, and then honestly, Grant's been a huge advocate of that. Grant, um, he has had a ton of opportunity in this space and he's always inviting me into it, recommending me opening doors for me. I think if, if a young female can find a man that's passionate about that, that says, I believe in you and I believe in the voice God's put upon you and I believe in your gifting. And then they put their money where their mouth is to actually include you. Then that will open doors and create space. And it becomes a ripple effect of that. How essential is that for churches to be aware of, young women are going to want opportunities and we need to visit that. I mean, how is that a big deal to millennials? I think it's a big deal because the world is creating a ton of opportunity for them. And so they're going to go to the world if there's not opportunity in the church. Yeah, we're talking about that more in the next one. (laughs) We got to go, but we love y'all. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Make sure to check out the resource we mentioned at the beginning of the episode called Leaving a Legacy, which you can download for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. May God bless you as you make disciples who make disciples, even among those of the next generation.